Hey, it's Elise, and this is How to Disappoint Your Mom. It's a podcast about people who didn't want to regret their life, even if that meant rejection by the people they love most. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for listening, and I can't even believe it because altogether you've spent 367 listening hours on this journey with me, which is the equivalent of watching every episode of Friends four times. And I've had people listen to this podcast in Russia, Austria, France, and Ireland, and I don't even know people in half of those countries. And it means a lot to me that you're listening because these conversations mean a lot to me. This podcast was really an experiment for me. I decided to try out five or six episodes and then decide whether or not to continue. And I'm about at that fifth or sixth episode here. So if you're just listening to one episode or if you've listened to all of them, like my mom, shout out to Midwest Mary. Hi, mom. I'd love to hear your response to the podcast. Um, Even if you have feedback about the format or future topics or just kind of what you think about things moving forward, I'll take that all into account when I make decisions. So you can let me know on Insta at Smith. The link is in uh, the description, or you can reach out on Facebook. This episode is a little bit different. The last three episodes were interviews, but this episode, it's just me. I've noticed a theme that every episode had in common, and that theme is quitting. In the first episode uh, with Trisha Rose Burt, she quit her career and her marriage, and she moved to Ireland to be an artist. And in the last episode, Kyra quit the church that her family had been a part of for 150 years, and she quit her emotionally abusive marriage. And quitting was really the hardest part for them and the best thing for them. And it was the best thing because, not because of the quitting itself, but because in order to live the life that they were called to, they had to quit their old life. They had to step out of their old life. And there is no room for both. And if we want to have relationships where we feel safe and seen, and we want to have jobs where we are challenged and inspired, that means that we have to quit the relationships and the jobs that aren't working. If you happen to be someone who married the first person that you ever ask out, you're still working at your first job out of college, doing the major that you picked on the first day of freshman orientation, going to the same church your parents went to, then you don't need to quit a thing. But also, why the hell are you listening to my podcast? (laughs) But uh, for all the rest of us, we need to become good at quitting. Quitting just means you didn't get it right the first time and you need to try again. Or quitting means that the job that was a great fit five years ago, you've outgrown. So I'm going to share what I believe are five myths about quitting, including an actual text that I sent to set boundaries in a relationship, some of my favorite books about having tough conversations, and some of my regrets about coming out as gay and what I'd do differently if I did it again. Of course, this is my caveat to this podcast. Before you take any advice from me, talk to your doctor, your lawyer, your psychotherapist, or even your mom for all I care. Okay, let's jump into five myths about quitting. The first myth I think a lot of us believe is that quitting is for losers. I believe the very opposite. I think that quitting is the key to success and fulfillment. As Seth Godin said, he's one of my favorite authors. He says, the biggest obstacle to success in our life is our inability to quit what's not working soon enough. 
I think that we tend to believe that quitting is a moral failure. In reality, it's really a commitment to our potential. Quitting is about making room for the life that you want to lead. And I think to get a sense of that, you could look at Trisha or Kyra or when any of the last three podcasts, you will see that quitting was the first step toward their personal freedom for every single one of them. I personally consider myself a master quitter. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I started taking community classes to become a nurse, community college classes, and I quit that. And then I was a missionary for a hot second in West Africa, a literal and figurative hot second. Then I went to uh, a small liberal arts college to study music education, and I quit that. Then I graduated, finally, from a state school majoring in lucrative field of philosophy. After that, I experimented with all different types of life options, like hippie that grows your own toilet paper or being a gourmet chef. Then I studied organizational psychology at an Ivy League, and I paused that program. So, you know, in the last uh, seven years or so, I've lived in seven cities, five states, and two countries. When I know something is not taking me in the direction that I want to go, I quit. And that includes pausing relationships, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about how, for me, quitting has enabled me to stick with the right stuff. If you listened to the last episode, you already know one of those things, my relationship with Kyra. I will go to my deathbed so proud that I did not quit that relationship. We barely talked for almost five years because the relationship was so broken, but Carmen and I didn't quit on it. And my marriage to Carmen is another thing that I've stuck with for so long, despite people actively trying to break us up. And we stuck with biking across the country, building the tiny house, and we've stuck it out through some tough times, you know, as it always is, in starting our, our business. We have the self-published author accelerator, and we work with authors before they publish books. And as all businesses, it's tough to stick it out at the beginning. I think for being 27 years old, my life is pretty good. I like my job about 50% of the time. I'm not rich, but my finances are stable. I am totally in love in my marriage. Love you, Carmen. And I adore the city that I live in. Love you, Austin. And I have, you know, time in my life to try new things like building a tiny house or starting a podcast. I have time for those things. So I'll be the first to say that life is certainly a mixture of luck and smart choices. And I've been lucky, but I do not believe that I would have this life without quitting the stuff that just was not working for me, including relationships and jobs and careers. I think the reason we have to master quitting is that humans suck at predicting what will make us happy. And a great read for the science behind that that I just read a few months ago is called Stumbling on Happiness, or uh, one that's specifically about money and how we don't understand like what spending will make us happy. It's called Happy Money. So we're constantly ending up in these situations where we thought you know, something would make us happy, but it doesn't. And the worst feeling in the world is to work so hard for a marriage or a job or a milestone, then to get it and find out that it's not what you really wanted. As Tony Robbins says, success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And I think that's where a lot of us end up because we refuse to quit the things that just are not making us happy even if we're doing well at them or that aren't fulfilling us or that we aren't doing well at. And the chances that you get it all right the first time, your first job, your first person that you date are very low. So we have to figure out 
when to throw in the towel. Quitting myth number two is never quit on family, rarely quit on friends. Here's a saying that I have about relationships. I will never close the door on a relationship, but I will shut the screen door. I've never ended a relationship completely. That being said, I think that coming out has changed my views on relationships. That's because for most relationships, for most people, the bad behavior happens in a shit trickle, which is just like a slow drip, drip, drip. But when we came out, the bad behavior was more like a shit twister, which is my own terminology, but you can feel free to borrow it. You can refer, in fact, (laughs) you can refer to this podcast with the hashtag shit twister podcast. But uh, (laughs) where were we? I think the most painful part of coming out was losing respect and belonging. You can't be gay and belong in a conservative Christian setting, which is the setting that both me and my wife grew up in. But somehow, I thought that even if I couldn't regain that belonging, I could regain the respect if I let people share their opinions and views and listened patiently. So for a while, we had absolutely no boundaries. We would let people say anything at all to us for as long as they wanted to take. And I really regret that choice. I regret letting people say whatever they want for two reasons. And the first is that every time I let someone talk shit about me or my marriage, I send a message to myself that I won't stand up for me. And believing I won't stand up for me is a really frightening and uncomfortable way to live. And the second reason is that it makes the healing even harder. I'm a really optimistic person. I, you know, I believe that all relationships have the potential to heal, even if most of them won't. And if those people ever do change and want to rebuild a relationship, you have to rebuild knowing all of those things. And if I had stopped them from saying those things, it would have made the rebuilding process, the healing process, and been so much better for the future of our relationship. And I think an example of this is, I think back to the first time I went to Carmen's family Christmas. And everyone dreams about, or at least thinks about, what it would be like to go to your new in-law's house for the holidays. You pick your outfits carefully. You think about whether or not you're going to shake someone's hand or give them a hug. And like I said, I'm a hardcore optimist, so I thought we had a chance at the ideal family Christmas, despite being gay and coming into a conservative family. But the first night of the family Christmas, we got a text at 3 a.m. from a family member saying they wanted to have a sit-down talk with Carmen. And we come to find out that they had stayed up with a few other family members into the, you know, 2, 3, 4 a.m., deciding whether or not they were going to drive home in the middle of the night, canceling family Christmas because I had come. And the next day, they sat Carmen down for an hour-long talk. And toward the end, they said, I pray that God breaks both of your legs so that you can no longer run from him. And if you had taken a video the next day of what it looked like in the house, it would look like this Hallmark Christmas with the kids playing with their new toys on the floor, the tree in the front window, the Christmas steak in the oven. But instead, for both of us, for Carmen and I, it was one of the loneliest days of the year. And I wish that Carmen, I wish so badly that Carmen had ended that conversation. 
In fact, I wish that Carmen had never even gone into the room and said, I'm, I'm not going to sit down with you. Instead, she went up there and sat silently for an hour. And I wish that because that sent a message that we wouldn't stand up for ourselves, that we wouldn't stand up for ourselves in the many conversations that came after that. I also regret that because it makes that relationship that much harder to heal. And we eventually learned how to set boundaries, how to end conversations, how to step back in a relationship that's not working. In fact, I have found that we now set boundaries, you know, that people uh, typically aren't comfortable setting until their 40s or 50s. We're comfortable setting now because of all of these circumstances that we've gone through. And there's really only been two people that we specifically told we were stepping back. Other people, we just reduced the relationship without saying anything. And no matter how shitty the relationship is, it still sucks. It sucks so bad to set boundaries because you have to acknowledge, first of all, who they currently are and how they currently act. Kyra talked about this in the last podcast, that setting boundaries meant she had to acknowledge with her ex-husband he didn't love her and he didn't respect her. And that is one of the hardest parts of setting boundaries is you're acknowledging this current state of the relationship and you're letting go of what you hoped the relationship would be. I remember one of the first texts that we sent to set some boundaries with someone. I was sitting on the couch with Carmen. We were about to send a text uh, to say that they could no longer call or visit. You know, this person had already treated us like shit. We'd given them what felt like a hundred chances. But when we finally sent that text, Carmen just sat down on the couch and wept. She wept because she still loved them so deeply. She wept because she was letting go of what she wanted the relationship to be. And because setting boundaries just feels shitty. Now, I know one of the questions that comes up on this topic is you're wondering, like, how did we know when to step back in a relationship? I don't know how to answer that specifically for every single situation, but I can tell you roughly what we did. Every relationship where we've stepped back was someone who loved conflict, couldn't receive a lot of the love that we were giving them because of their own um, um, frameworks. They were constantly looking for ways to feel left out. And they would blow through even the smallest boundaries that we would set. Someone asked another author that I like, Naval Ravikant, tips for handling conflict resolution. And I will never forget his response. He said, the number one rule for conflict resolution is don't hang out with people who love conflict. And when we looked around after we heard that quote, and we looked around our life, and we realized that 90% of the drama in our life was caused by four or five people. Four or five people were causing 90% of the drama in our life, and we've just worked slowly to step back in those four or five relationships. Myth three, quitting myth three is, if you carefully explain why you're quitting, they will understand. Obviously, we all wanna be understood, so it's natural to wanna explain why we're stepping back in a relationship or quitting a job. And in terms of relationships, my rule is, unless it's your partner, I will never explain in detail why I'm stepping back in a relationship. During, for example, that strained period with Kyra, Carmen and I decided it was so unpleasant to be around Kyra and her ex at that time. Like I said, things have changed a lot since then, but at that time it was so unpleasant 
that we would only see them for a few hours once a year. And we didn't tell them this at the time. We didn't tell them we'd made that decision. We certainly didn't tell them why we made that decision. We just did it. Other times we had to tell people what we were doing, but we didn't tell them why. We just said, we're not going to talk on the phone anymore and please don't visit us for now. For example, um, I wanted to pull up an actual text that I sent somebody. So here's an actual text I sent someone. Hey, I've been meaning to write this for a long time, but I never knew how to say it. Our interactions have been routinely hurtful and damaging, even if unintentionally. I don't want to go into detail because it wouldn't be helpful. I recognize this will possibly come as a surprise because I never said anything and perhaps you will feel shocked and angry. For my own sake, I need to establish some boundaries. I don't want you to visit by yourself and I do not want to talk on the phone. I still care about our relationship, which makes this decision that much more difficult for me. I would still love to hang out at groups, uh, at group events, and would love to get updates in the group chat. I will not negotiate this decision. I'm very sorry that I haven't been honest for a long time. I know this could be deeply hurtful to you. So that was a text. Um, I don't remember the specific timeline, but it was several years ago. And I wanted to give a specific example because you'll notice a few things about that. Uh, first is that I'm very clear it's not up for debate. I'm not bringing this up to negotiate with them. This is a decision I've already made. But I'm pretty vague about why it's happening. That's because if you've gotten to the point where you're stepping back, that means the person has already violated your boundaries multiple times. They've already shown low ability for having sympathy for others because if it's someone who's blowing through your boundaries a lot, typically that's going to be someone who doesn't really understand what it's like to be other people. And we don't explain to this person now because multiple people had already confronted this person that I sent this text to. Multiple people had already confronted them and they hadn't changed because it wasn't just us, it was other people as well. And if we had explained to this person in detail or even if we had explained to Kyra and her ex, then they wouldn't have understood and it would have only created more pain for us. My, um, <laughs> I, this isn't particularly instructive or helpful, but I do have to say, I have to add here that my favorite reaction I ever got to setting boundaries was one person who asked, <laughs> okay, one person who asked for a refund from coming to our wedding. And it's like, they were thinking that like coming to our wedding is like a trip to Target where you can just go and get all your money back if you have the, if you have the receipt. I almost like, Karen and I, when we got that text, almost fell off the couch laughing when we got that because, uh, I mean, first of all, just the type of twisted thinking, but then also just confirmation. It's a total confirmation about the decision that, that we're making. Um, but I think that kind of covers one, one topic, which is how, how do you do with someone who things are so broken down that you really need to step back? That's one area. But another area that I've thought a lot about is what do you do when there's still a chance that someone will change their behavior and we haven't gotten to that place of really setting stark boundaries? In that case, I, I'm a big proponent of bringing things up. And I really wasn't good at this for a long time and I've been practicing. And a book that has really helped me with this is Nonviolent Communication by Marshall, uh, Marshall Rosenberg, which lays out a simple template for having these conversations. And the template is, you say, an observation, a feeling, a request, and a need. And I'll give an example. So once we went to visit some of Carmen's family after we'd already been together five years and we were engaged. And they had created 
what they called the family picture wall with pictures of everyone in the family. Uh, that is everyone but me. Everyone else was with their partner, but Carmen's pick uh, on the family picture wall was with her hang gliding instructor and there was a picture of her holding a koala. And there's these moments in life when there's a clear message being sent. And this was one of them. And the message was, you are not a part of this family. And that really hurts. As always, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything about what that felt like to walk into that house, visiting this family, and to see that on their wall. But I wish, I wish that I had said something. And this is what I would have said now that I've read nonviolent communication and been working on this template. I would have said, I noticed, ooh, it's hard even kind of to talk through it now. I noticed there's no picture of me on the family wall. I feel alienated and hurt when I see that. Would you be willing to add a picture of Carmen and I to the wall because I want to feel like I'm part of this family? So using the nonviolent communication template, that is, I notice there's no picture of me on the wall. That's the observation. I feel alienated and hurt when I see that. You're labeling your feelings. Uh, would you be willing to add a picture of Carmen and I? I guess, uh, here we go, my language here, but... Would you be willing to add a picture of Carmen and me to the wall? That is the request. And then I want to feel like I'm part of this family is the need. So it's observation, feeling, request, need. And I think I wish I'd said that because I know these family members were trying at having a relationship with us. And giving them a specific request gives them the chance to step into love in a way you can receive it. Of course, that's what also makes it so terrifying because they might not. They might not step into that request. And to make our feelings and needs known is a type of vulnerability in and of itself. So that is one type of sharing, which is sharing in a relationship sharing boundaries or sharing before you're getting to the point of boundaries about requests for a need that you have or feelings that you have. Another type of sharing in a relationship is what if you've made a big life decision in and of yourself and you just need to share that with someone? For example, Trisha in the first episode that we talked about, she had to tell her parents and her whole family, they all loved business, they were all in corporate and they loved it and she had to tell them she was quitting a corporate life. And even more difficult, Kyra, in the last episode, had to tell her church that she'd been a part of her whole life, that she was getting divorced, which meant she would have to leave. Here's what I think is happening most of the time in those circumstances. We already know the right decision, but we're nervous about it because we're looking, or we're nervous, not that we're because, but we're nervous about it, and so we are looking for external validation. And I think it's fine to share your reasoning in those cases, unlike when you're stepping back in a relationship. I think it's fine to say, here's why I'm getting divorced. Here's why I'm quitting this job. As long as you're really clear that the validation needs to come from within. If you have already made that decision, then you're not trying to get validation. You're just trying to share with people that are important in your life. And the validation has to come from within. Okay, quitting myth number four is just quit and figure it out later. When we hear these stories of these people being bold risk takers, leaving everything behind, we often miss the timeline. And I wanna talk specifically about the timeline and I've tried to highlight that in this podcast. For Trisha, 
even though she divorced her husband, she sold her house, she sold her car, she cashed out her retirement savings, and she quit her job in two weeks, it was two years that she was working through that decision. Two years before those two weeks that she spent working on her marriage, that she spent talking to a career guidance counselor about what uh, career she might do, taking different classes to try things out, um, you know, reviewing her finances to figure out what she could make work, setting up the trip um, that when she was going to move to Ireland, she went and tried it out and lived there a little bit. And it's, it's, it's important to think about the amount of time that people actually figure out these transitions. So same thing with Kyra. So when Kyra divorced her husband, um, you know, it felt fast at the end, but there was two or three years in there in which she was realizing that there were negative patterns of behavior. Then she was taking classes or reading books to understand what those were, that they were emotional abuse and different types of narcissism. Then she was having conversations with her ex-husband where she said, look, this is what's going to have to change for this marriage to work. Then, and I think this is important, which we'll talk about in a minute, she was building up community, going to other churches. And she was bringing her family on board and telling them what was going on. And all of that takes two or three years before the divorce is finalized and goes through, or I, I should say, even before she files for divorce. And even the filing takes multiple months. And so I think it's important to, you know, not be someone who's leaping before they look to see where they're leaping. And one big area that a lot comes up in a lot of these discussions with Kyra, with Tricia, not so much with Wen, is finances. I don't think that you should quit a job before you have a significant savings buffer or another job lined up. And my favorite book for sorting through the finances side of things is called I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. And he helps you build out your dream, then build up the financial infrastructure to achieve that dream. It's not just about how to save money, but it's about how to spend money on the things that actually matter to you. That book has really changed my life and I can't recommend it enough. So that covers the finances piece of thing. But another big loss that can happen in these decisions, and that happened with Trisha and with Wen and with Kyra, was a loss of community. I don't think that you should leave a community before you have another community that you started to build relationships with. And my favorite example of this is Kyra. Before she told the church that her family had been a part of for 150 years, that she was getting a divorce, which she knew would probably set in motion that she would have to leave or be kicked out. She started to go to other churches. Little by little, she would go to other churches until she found a church. And she found a church that she was going to before she even, you know, told the, the pastor at her old church that, you know, she was getting divorced and might have to leave. And I love that example because I think it is so important, and I so wish that we had had that when we came out. When Carmen and I came out, we didn't have another community built up outside of the conservative homeschool community that we grew up in. And so a lot of the relationships dramatically changed for us without having that infrastructure to support ourselves. That is something I would think a lot about if you're making a decision that will cost you some of your community is what's the support that I have in place after this decision goes through. Now, if you have a slow-moving personality, this current point is not really an issue for you, and you'll actually use this point as an excuse to wait for too long. 
So this next one is for you, which is myth five. I have to have it all figured out first. You're never going to have it all figured out. As Joseph Campbell wrote, if you can see your path laid out in front of you step by step, you know it's not your path. It's so tempting, and I love to do it too, to use the excuse, I don't know if this will work as a reason to stay put. Here's a simple question that I've started to ask myself because I have a tendency to make things too complicated, to try to figure things out too much. I use this, is it moving me closer to my mountain? And that's from a Neil Gaiman commencement speech called Make Good Art, which I highly recommend watching if you haven't seen it on YouTube. Here's how he explains it, and this is a quote from his commencement speech. Something that worked for me was imagining that where I wanted to be, an author, primarily of fiction, making good books, making good comics, and supporting myself through my words, was a mountain, a distant mountain, my goal. And I knew that as long as I kept walking towards the mountain, I would be all right. And when I truly was not sure what to do, I could stop and think about whether it was taking me towards or away from the mountain. I said no to editorial jobs on magazines, proper jobs that would have paid proper money because I knew that, attractive though they were, for me, they would have been walking away from the mountain. And if those jobs had come along earlier, I might have taken them because they would still have been closer to the mountain than I was at my time than I was at that time. And I love that quote, this idea of just figuring out what your mountain is and then deciding roughly because, you know, life is, uh, there's not an exact blueprint. It's kind of rough estimates, a lot of guesstimates in life. Rough guesstimates, is this taking me toward my mountain or away from my mountain? And for me, an example from my life was studying music education. So when you study music education, you spend four years learning how to sing Italian arias, and then you spend the rest of your life hurting hyperactive fourth graders because you become a music teacher and you spend all day like hurting hyperactive fourth graders in class. And I understood that I was spending hundreds of hours practicing something that I didn't even want to do and that I sucked at. So I quit. And I should say on that, uh, there are many pleasures in life, but <laughs> hearing me sing an Italian aria is certainly not one of them. So that covers what to do if you already know what your mountain is, how to think about decisions moving forward. But let's say that you don't even know, what you're, you're not sure what your mountain is. A great book for helping you figure that out is called Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. I read a lot of those career guidance books and I find that most of them are total bullshit. Like there was one career guidance survey that one of my best friends took and she checked that she liked animals and biology, and it told her to become a taxidermist because it's like, oh, you like animals, and then you'll love plastering their dead bodies on styrofoam. <laughs> and it was just, she said it was just so far off from what she wanted to do. There's a lot of bullshit, but designing your life is not like that. It's very tangible. It's practical. It's a little bit boring at the beginning, so you'll have to skim that part. But then it offers these awesome exercises every single chapter to help you figure out exactly what your mountain is. And I think it's well worth the time. But then once you know your mountain, once you put a few building blocks in place, like finances and communities, you have to go for it without having everything figured out. That wraps up the fifth myth. But before I close out this podcast, I wanted to say that as I was prepping for this, 
I kept coming back to this quote by Oprah, where she said, do not think you can be brave with your life and your work and never disappoint anyone. It doesn't work that way. I hope, I hope you'll find a way to take one step closer to the life you want to be living. Now that we've wrapped up the five myths, I just want to say one more time, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm making some decisions about the future of the podcast soon, so feel free to reach out with feedback on the format or the topics. I'd love to hear what you think. You can find me on Instagram at the.elisemith or on Facebook. I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.